0: Welcome back! I'm Greg Livingston, and this is the second in the communes series of three podcasts on Gamescape 2015, a summer indie developer showcase from Baltimore, Maryland. This time, you'll hear two interviews with dev teams, where we flesh out both game design and development team dynamics. First up, we've got Stomp, where players control a monster, or to be precise, a kaiju, from a scrolling overhead view. Their goal is to demolish as many buildings as possible while avoiding gas stations and collecting power-ups. It's under development by...
1: Joel Garcia, producer of Stomp.
2: Nathan McLean, the programmer.
3: Hi, I'm Leah Jennings. I am um, asset artist and concept artist.
0: All right, glad to meet you all. Stomp is a fun little game where you get to create a lot of havoc, a lot of destruction, always fun. But it's also centered around gaining high scores, crushing as much stuff as possible without blowing up. So i wanted to ask, uh, how can players improve in Stomp? Which is to say, what aspects of Stomp can the player influence and what else is uh, beyond their control?
1: All right, so players can influence the movements of their monsters. Because this game is centered around tracking players as they walk, if they travel uh, long distances quickly in the game space within the constraints of the Kinect's view, they'll be able to destroy more buildings and, of course, gain higher scores. Now, uh, they can also impact their reflexes through each playthrough. So, you know, of course, if uh, they practice, they become quicker. One element that they have no control over is the randomly generated buildings. Nathan can definitely cover this topic.
0: Yeah, so Nathan, is there any... What is the method behind behind the building generation?
2: Is it purely random
0: or is there like a sense of level design?
2: Well, there is a sense of level design. Um, What I did in designing the basics of Stomp was to create prefabs in Unity that are just placeholders. So any of our designers can then place a placeholder anywhere on the map. And once those placeholders are set, there's a script that runs through that randomly generates a different building tile each time the each time the game is run. We use a similar one for generating the um, the towers and the the gas stations. So that randomly generates between the gas station and the towers that you collect to become a mega kaiju.
0: And there must be some algorithm behind the scenes so that certain types of buildings
2: appear in appropriate proportion? Correct, well, right now, the, right now the algorithm goes through about 10 different buildings as well as two park tiles. We're hoping to expand that at some point in time and kind of use different randomization on where they are within the scene. But for right now, just as a proof of concept, it's going through every type of building we have for that level. And then on the next level, we're using a different set of buildings, but still it's 10 with the two others. And that's what it goes through to generate each building tile.
0: Okay. So you mentioned that there are different types of building tiles per level. Do they behave any differently? Would the player come up with different strategies based on the level?
2: Um, We're still working on the logic for that and how to present to a player, like almost like a shopping list of buildings that you that you need to collect for different things to happen. And that would go into our future designs for different power-ups for the kaiju, different types of, like right now it's just the mega, but also we plan on possibly adding beams or different, different types of additions that you can get for, for limited time with the kaiju. If you collect certain building types and of course that list on the side will Change to show which buildings you need to collect and how many you need to collect to get a certain power-up. Okay.
0: And Joel, you had mentioned that players could get better at the game by uh, improving their reflexes. I was wondering how much variety you've seen in player performance based off of uh, just their ability to get around the real-world space.
1: At Gamescape alone, we saw plenty of variety. I mean, we had kids come in, like, hopping back and forth between the game space, and then, uh, you know, every now and then we had, like, some adults try out the game, and some of them would get it, and then, like, you had a couple who were, like, really, really cautious, like, walking uh, bit by bit just to see what their kaiju would do on screen. And then we had, like, a really, really cool um, playthrough done by a guy on crutches, he moved slowly, but he was able to like cover a lot of ground on each map.
0: Is there has there been one type of movement that has been more successful than others, or does anyone or does everyone generally find their own way to
2: success?
1: What do you think, guys?
2: Well, um, I what I noticed because this was really one of our first public trials. So before this, it's just been us testing the game. And of course, we knew the limitations of the game, so we would move completely throughout it. We, um, I know, we noticed um, that some some users would get right into it and move around the whole space, but others would just kind of stand there and not not know what was going on. So we're thinking about building a tutorial type stage that kind of gets people used to moving around in that actual space and showing that it. Actually moves your character around the virtual space, um, but I think we got a lot of good data this this past weekend on how, oh, yeah. how users play. Nice, no yeah.
3: Was, um, kind of interesting how um, people actually need to figure out how to move in the space. And we didn't. One thing we didn't realize maybe since we're used to playing it is that you kind of need to teach someone how to move in this space because people are usually start off maybe waving their arms or stomping their feet up and down and you have to physically show them you can walk from side to side or forward and backward and then they kind of slowly the light bulb turns on and they figure out what they are allowed to do in the game and then maybe how to strategize better or like how to move more successfully and I think there, there is some variety to the types of patterns that people can use to, to play, but it's there, there's a lot of similarity. Basically, you, you want to have full range of motion. And I think we do want to increase the sensitivity so you can control the monster a little bit more and not get lost on screen. But yeah, a lot of good data over the weekend, a lot of different people doing it different ways. Nice.
0: Yeah, it does seem uh, like it would be tricky conveying the mapping of real-world real, real world space to game space. You know, we kind of just understand how a joystick works. That's been around for several decades now, but using your body as a game controller is not something we are
2: terribly used to. No, I don't. I think it's something that definitely takes a little getting used to. The... Um... People I saw using it the, the most and the most, like, the way we envision were the younger kids because they would just, once they realized that they were being followed around on the screen by this monster, they just took to it and were moving everywhere, almost running into people that weren't in the
0: game. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah.
1: You guys remember these three kids? One, about, I guess, like, seven or eight, and then his two younger siblings. The oldest brother stood in the center of the game space, and the youngest siblings just ran around him like a merry-go-round. I believe they achieved 2,800 points through their playthrough, so they definitely grasped the concept of
0: coverage and moving quickly around the map. I was also curious among your development staff who has been the most successful playing the game?
3: I'm playing the game.
2: Oh, okay. Who's so got the high I'm score?
3: Sure you meant okay. <laughs>
2: oh. <laughs> I don't know really. that I've actually played for a high score before just to make sure that everything was working. It was it's always been a matter of making sure that the kaiju showed up on screen the buildings when they were destroyed that they actually calculated upright, um, and then that the mega was actually working correctly. I don't know, did either of you all ever play in testing for a high score?
3: Yeah, I I know I beat Hero's score on Saturday.
1: Nice. Jeremy.
3: Yeah.
1: Jeremy was, uh, he's a recent person that uh, joined our team uh, he may be helping us out with like sound effects and music and such and even voiceovers, but he gained a total of about nine uh two thousand nine hundred points I believe through one uh playthrough of both
0: levels all right mm-hmm. I was also continuing about the uh development staff. I was wondering uh how much do team roles bleed together? Do you often have the programmer giving graphics giving opinion on the graphics or the graphics person giving opinion about how the game plays.
1: I think uh, Leia would be good at covering this um, portion of the station.
3: I think probably Joel is the most interdisciplinary member on the team right now because uh, since he's the uh, producer, he he sort of has his hands in each of the things that we're doing and also has a wide variety of skills that he's been able to help with sort of filling in wherever we need. So he's helped me with the animation and he's done the level design. And I believe he's also familiar with the coding. Whereas uh, the the artists are more segregated where we sort of have our own email threads and we just focus on the art stuff and the programmers mostly focus on the programming. Especially since now that we have three, four artists we try to not bother the programmers too much. So we'll have some kind of like separate art meetings and then maybe for a big meeting, we'll all get together and just sort of check with everyone. Like, does this look good to you? That makes sense. Okay. So it
0: sounds like uh, maybe the artists do a lot of talking amongst each other and the programmers might talk amongst each other a whole lot, but there's not a lot of uh, discussion between the two groups aside from when things come together.
2: Well, I mean, I know that I talk with, talk with Leah and Joelle a lot when, um, when it comes to things that I'm noticing during the design or during the programming process that would help, it would help visually express what we have going on. you can say it's a huge dialogue, but definitely just, just the conversation of, you know, What looks good with the buildings how they're you know what we need as far as them looking how they look intact and then how they look when they're destroyed i know we all went through a bit while we were getting the kaiju actually built um and then knowing that you know we're taking those gifts and putting them or taking those images and putting them actually into unity there's a small process in that and if there's something a little bit off I know we talk about that back and forth as well I mean it's just because it's so seamless especially with Joel having his hands kind of in both areas it usually goes so smoothly that we don't even notice it but definitely with the things that Joel does as far as animation and prototyping it's been a huge help and that's helped us to be able to isolate ourselves within programming or within art to be able to maximize what we can do. Okay.
3: Yeah. So I, I think it's a kind of a combination. Where everyone has their own roles, but we're also constantly uh, looking to each other for feedback um, because we really have to be like a cohesive unit. Because if I make a piece of art that doesn't like, can't be programmed, then it's useless. So Joelle's been like trying to make sure that everybody's on the same page as much as possible, and that's been really good.
1: All right, so I do completely agree with both Nathan and Leia. We do have our times where we're segregated and we work individually on our own tasks, but then we come together and put together a playable build uh, so that we can make sure it's uh, refined from all ends. And then we also give each other feedback when necessary. I recall there were times where um, Jillian Walker, the artist behind our logo, basically emailed everyone on our team to see what they thought about the logo. Throughout uh, the a couple of weeks, she got a lot of feedback from the team, both programmers and artists, and she formed this logo that I feel definitely captures the essence of the game. Breaking stuff. And then... There's this other example where uh, Leia personally went over to Nathan to see whether or not he felt that the building sprites that she was making would fit into the game. He was excited to tell her, yes, they're bright and colorful, Uh, they're simple in detail, yet they're distinct enough for players to recognize. He also went ahead and said that they would also captivate the audience that he felt we could go for. Kids, primarily. So, I feel as though we work together in such a way where we do create, like, this intricate web that is transparent sometimes, Um, but it isn't only transparent because of, like, the fact that I am jumping in between uh different areas of the game, but it's also transparent because everyone's willing to communicate and also work together and be flexible with each other. The Mega is a primary example of that. Um That was both the idea of an artist and a programmer. I'll give the... Uh, the programming portion to Nathan since he had originally conceived uh, that we should like create like um, this mechanic uh, of Omega by just increasing the size of the Kaiju and then Leia I'll give her the credit mainly because she well, for the art uh, art end of it since she was the one that uh, thought that it would be good to give players a visual indicator uh, by providing a kaiju that changes visually with more detail and a different animation. So I really have to thank the team as a whole. Jillian Walker, Nathan McClain, Leah Jennings, Hiroshi Butler, and every one of the new members that have uh, recently joined. I feel like you guys work together very well mainly because you guys communicate and also because you're willing to be flexible with one another. Thank you.
0: Nice. It sounds like you're a well-oiled machine.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Definitely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Over the world. So one last question, uh, just more of a conceptual question I, I wanted to run by each of you individually. Joel, could you tell me when it comes to game design, which is more important, the game itself the the intention of the developer or the experience of the player?
1: I feel to a certain extent that each of those things is important. There are games out there that are made specifically for players to have fun with and do whatever they want with. Like, you know, Saints Row, for example, has, like, this gigantic world with so many different, like, uh, means of interaction. And even something uh, like Kirby 64, a platformer that allows you to mix and match power-ups. I feel like those focus in on user experience And then, like, you have other games that are about getting some sort of concept across. Like, for example, Papers, Please, Papers, Please, uh, I feel is a commentary on immigration. I personally, as a game designer, would uh, love to mesh with those two things. I would like to create games that are focused on passing along theories and concepts that I have... And any commentary I have about this uh, world. And also, I'd like to create games that are um, based on the user experience. So, um, if I were to like set up some sort of hierarchy, maybe for example, depending on what I'm aiming to do, what my concept is, perhaps I would make a game that is 25% my concept and theory, and then uh, 75% uh, gameplay and fun.
0: So it's that idea of a of a clean, end-to-end communication where uh, the player successfully receives the thought imparted by the designer.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's, that, and of course, they also have fun. Like, uh, there, there has to be a point where, like, either they're, they're having a really good time or the design is set up in such a way where, like... Um, I guess they they walk away with something else. Like I, I know that not all games have to be fun, not all of them have to be happy. There can be sad moments, there can be uh moments that get you angry. I mean like Bioshock Infinite is an example where like uh that gameplay focuses on tense moments where it isn't really about happiness if, if like you focus in on like, you know, uh the gameplay itself, like, you know, the action oriented shooting here and there FPS stuff. I think but, uh, um
0: You might say engaging rather than fun.
1: Yes, that would be a better uh, term to use, actually.
0: Okay. Nathan, when it comes to game design, which is more important, the game itself, the developer, or the experience of the player?
2: The experience of the player for me is always at the top of my list, wanting to make sure that the player is engaged, as you said earlier, but also making sure that we're taking care of the player's needs as we're as we're designing the game is first of all, without, without having a player, you don't have a game. And I know that just this past weekend had opened my eyes to a lot of areas that we can focus on to tighten up the game and get a, get a better feel for what players want out of the game, not necessarily just what we want. Now, design wise, I also feel like Joel does as far as getting the giving the players a certain feel when they're playing the game. So like while a lot of the ideas I definitely took to heart this weekend, there's some things that just are outside of the realm of what we wanted to do with this game, while others are definitely things that we're looking at and looking at including in the game so that we can kind of make it something that the players feel is theirs and they're in the game and they're enjoying the world versus a strict this is our experience this is what we want you to do and you know don't deviate from that i definitely like the concept of games like minecraft and grand theft auto where the game is designed to let the player have use their imagination in how they play now this game doesn't completely lend itself to that but it does give us the give us some area to play with as far as adding different difficulty levels and different things to get players up and moving about and just enjoying the game in general
0: sure you might even say you know the connect itself is a method of expression uh that allows you know for a more individual touch than a joystick could yes so it sounds like as a designer you're concerned with creating expressive experiences a world in which a player could gain a sense of identity or at least display a sense of identity
2: yes um that's one of the things i found exciting about this past weekend is seeing how people got really just got into it and and the whole look at me i'm i'm moving around and it's doing what i'm doing
0: (laughs) that sounds really cool and uh Leah, when it comes to game design, which is more important—the game itself, the developer, or the player?
3: So, I think I'm gonna answer this in how I feel about design in general. Maybe not necessarily for this game, but I think that the the experience of the game is really the like the residue or the artifacts of. The game. That's the only way the game really exists is through being experienced by the player. But as a designer, you can't specifically engineer an experience. All you can do is sort of provide the substrate or the the playground in which someone else can um, generate their own experience. You can kind of guide someone into the type of experience. But that's going to be really up to the individual. And um, I think at the same time, it can't exist without the designer. And um, I think coming from the, the background of an artist, like a fine artist, uh, we really value having a very specific, uh, personal kind of nugget of uh, an idea or a feeling or an experience and then Um, expressing that into whatever you're doing and it can't and it's not necessarily even can be defined by specific mechanics like is it open world or is it very scripted it's it's really just a feeling that you impart on your on the people that are playing it so i think it's really kind of ephemeral (laughs) for me and it's a matter of trial and error yeah that's my very complicated answer <laughs> to that question.
0: Yeah, gameplay yeah. has always struck me as one of those uh, abstract things, like music, where you know you read a book or look at a picture, you can see these are people doing things, but music and gameplay are kind of experienced on a more, uh, like you said, ephemeral or maybe uh, in some kind of deeper level.
3: Yeah. All right.
0: Uh, well, thank you all for joining me tonight. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with all of you. Thank you, Greg.
3: Yeah, thank well, you. For thank me. you for the opportunity. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Look out for Stomp at the Boston Festival of Indie Games, and you can catch them on Facebook at facebook.com/stompgame. Our interview touched on discussions the commune had while playing Ball Cube. The team covered what influences the range of what the player can control including motion control and procedural generation. They also explain gameplay from the perspective of seeking a high score. We had similar discussions about Ball Cube in episodes 41 and 42. In Hubots, players slide robots across the screen to hit colored switches and reach the exit. However, once a robot starts sliding in one direction, it won't stop until it hits a wall. Here, the Hubots development team considers the role of planning in gameplay, as well as how the variety of elements influences that planning. How do players learn the function of elements, and how do they apply that knowledge? Let's get our answers from.
4: Hi, I'm Michael Lee Young.
0: I'm the project lead.
5: Uh, I'm Erica Schumacher, and I am the art lead.
6: And I'm Ted Cordell, and I'm the game designer and lead programmer. All right, nice to meet you all.
0: And, uh, nice to meet you too. We are here to discuss Hubots, a puzzle game for, I believe, Android. Are there any other devices it's out on? Oh, there's a lot. There's
4: Android. We're planning on iOS, Windows Phone, uh, PC, Mac. Both of those have demos up. Uh, possibly Linux. Now that um, Unity is starting to support Linux, uh, publishing a lot more with
0: the, with version five. Okay, Unity is actually uh, really powerful that way, isn't it?
4: Yeah, it's it's amazing like how fast they've progressed over like a couple of years.
0: But I'm not complaining. <laughs> so first, I wanted to get at progression in Hubots, and I wanted to ask, how did you ramp up the complexity of stages in Hubot Hubots from one stage to the next?
4: Oh sure, um, Chad would be really good at handling that since he was designed most of
6: the games. Uh, design yeah yeah so um i like to think about the entire game as just one big long thought process so you kind of start out you don't know anything so the levels are kind of designed around leading people's expectations towards rather having them act on instinct so we we make the things we want them to click on like kind of we point them out and kind of make them click on it so they know how to how to like build robots how to move them around the special quirks of them moving around. So the beginning levels just kind of teach you those things without actually explaining them. And then as the, as they start to turn into actual puzzles, it kind of messes with those expectations more. So so it'll kind of lead you to do one thing and then the puzzle after after it will kind of take what you learned from that previous puzzle and either put a twist on it or kind of mess with your expectations and force you to think more outside the box that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I guess just for clarification, is that to say in those introductory puzzles, does the player have any chance for failure in those opening puzzles?
6: There really isn't any failure in the game. I mean, really the only failure state is giving up, because the game's all about just solving those puzzles. There's no losing. You can you can undo moves, you can restart the level and try again if you want, You've, you have no like limit on lives. it's all just about thinking it through, so I guess the failure state would just be you know if you if you don't figure it out, then you might give up. That's really all it is
0: okay so it sounds like uh, consequences are pretty light for each individual move you make are you able like right. you're able to undo back all the way back to the beginning mm-hmm, okay.
6: Yeah, if you if you make a move you don't want, it you can just undo that move cuz the levels do get pretty complex. So if you just accidentally put a block in the wrong place or something, we don't make you restart the entire level.
0: Okay. So it sounded like you also introduced patterns and then sort of played on those patterns and built them into puzzles by reversing what players had come to expect.
6: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that, that kind of goes off what I was saying before about kind of using their expectations against them. So they might solve it one way, and then we'll change the color. We'll, like, change the color of one block or something. And they'll immediately assume, since the puzzle looks so similar, they'll try to solve it the same way, and that doesn't work. But then they'll be so, so like, stuck in that mindset of solving that first puzzle. They It really forces them to, like, kind of expand their mind and think outside of the box, and that makes it really satisfying to play when they finally, you know, solve that twist.
0: So would you count those as uh, red herrings or tricks, like trying to throw the player off?
6: Uh, I guess a little bit. Okay.
0: I also wanted to ask, how many steps ahead do players typically plan? You've demoed this game at Gamescape. I was wondering if any of you had noticed how players tend to play.
6: I'd say... Everybody seems to have a different play style. I mean, you you can, the game is definitely designed so that you can think through the entire puzzle before actually executing any of the moves. But some people do like to experiment and kind of go step by step and see what they can figure out. Sometimes that, just the way the levels is designed, that doesn't quite work out because they back themselves into a corner and kind of, Requires some planning, but it's definitely, either way is definitely a valid way of playing the game.
0: So when you say it's designed so that you can plan it out from the beginning, how is that? It's, it's just, um,
6: how to explain it?
5: So, I mean, each stage only has one or two solutions, so there's a way to get there. It's just up to the players to figure it out. So people can plan their way to that path, to the goal but they can also figure it out by just like messing around being like oh I wonder what this does and then they'll yeah. figure it out
6: yeah every every action in the game is predetermined like there's there's nothing random about the game every every move you make every specific move will have the same specific outcome there's so you can theoretically sit there and like plan out the moves before you actually execute them so the game's definitely a lot more about the thought process, than actually executing it in-game.
0: So it's almost like you see the puzzle on screen and you can look at each element and imagine uh, this is what's going to happen when I, you know, hit the wall here, this is what my option will be, so on and so
6: forth. Right. Okay. And, um, but yeah, there is also the, the more experimental way of playing, which which is actually more helpful in, like, the tutorial stages where you, you kind of, you don't know the outcomes yet because you haven't learned the game mechanics. So that's a lot more of a step-by-step process than thinking out the entire thing straight through. Okay. So well,
5: once, you get, um, once you get an idea of what each element in the game does, it becomes a lot easier to see the whole picture of the level and figure out, you know, how how do I get to point A to point B to point C to the goal?
0: Right. So there's like a network of complexities based on each of the different elements. Yeah, pretty much. What are uh, I think I played all the way through the demo, and I saw being able to place blocks and being able to place other robots. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the other elements that players will encounter as the game develops?
6: Uh, so there are there are basically these buttons that if you if a bot that matches its color stands on it. Then it'll. There's special blocks. Like the the buttons will have a number on it, and any block with that number on it will deactivate. So it's kind of like a pressure plate uh, door system kind of thing where you stand a bot on it and it'll deactivate the door. But the color matching thing plays a new account because the blocks have colors and the buttons have colors too. There are also push blocks that you'll encounter. So if a bot um, if a bot runs into the push block, then the block will push. But if the bot doesn't match the push block's color, it'll just stay there and act like a normal wall. And then there's also closer to the end of the game, there's there are color mixers. So you kinda send two bot you'll send in like a red bot and an orange bot, and it'll combine them in or a red bot and a yellow bot, sorry, and it'll combine them into an orange bot. So it kind of kind of like plays into that the the color mixing you learned in, like, first grade. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like the aesthetics do a large part of communicating what you can do with puzzles. Right. Just a more general question about game development. Do team roles tend to lead together, or do you generally find that you're more focused on your individual task without really uh, commenting on what the game as a whole is becoming? Uh do you mind if I handle this set? Yeah, yeah. Sure. sure. Go ahead. Um from my perspective as like
4: managing because like I, when I came on, I was actually um, more known more as like a really great programmer. I wasn't like like a star mad scientist kind of programmer. <laughs> and at first, like yeah, like it seemed like that was what I was going to do, just code. But it turned out that each of us had like really specialized really well. Like Ted knew everything about how the how the character should move, about how the block should behave. And he just understood the gameplay very naturally. And so he he was able to work on the gameplay really well and fit into that. Erica was really amazing with the art. But, of course, since we don't really have, like, a program to mix programming directly with art, she didn't know much about coding. So she just handled just mainly the visual design. And she might ask him, like, oh, how should this bot move to inform how she would do the tile designs or how she would do... Transitions between different animation states, and uh, same thing with Jasmine, because Jasmine had to actually do the actual frame by frame animations on top of that. So each of us had like a like a niche that we would focus on, but at the same time, each of us had to then communicate back with each other and ask, "Oh, how are you doing this? Why are you, why do you want to have this element executed in this fashion?" So we were doing it each of our individual tasks. By like we had our own um we basically owned our feature, but we had to do it with the information of the rest of the project behind it. We yeah. had to like each of our students had to be very much informed by what each of the other specialists was doing. um
6: if I can say something too. I mm-hmm. I think I think some of the jobs have bleed. Like sort i I've, I've personally worked on a lot of Things like I've done the programming and the design and the music and sound, and I've also helped kind of animate a few things, like the few of the simpler things, like the backgrounds, which people don't really notice, but it's good. But I feel like that's sort of a byproduct of having such a small team, since we only really have four people. On a on a bigger team, the the roles would probably be a lot more concrete, but. I mean, since there are only four of us, then usually we just kind of try to get done what needs to be done, given we have the skill set to do so.
0: With a four-person team, it's really easy to communicate and say, I, uh, I need this image to have this size so that it communicates this hitbox or something like that.
4: It's, it's sort of, yes. It's very organic. Like, after a while, you don't even think to ask those questions. Like, you just know, like, oh we're going to, re- we operate at this DPI, so I need this type of image size. We use a, like, we're tile-based, so we should have square aspect ratio for the textures. And so, like, eventually, like, after a couple months in, like, it wasn't, like, things like specific details like that. Sometimes it was more like, like, oh, like, which colors do you want me to pick? Do you want it to be, like, more this kind of purple, that kind of purple? They became, like, very qualitative. And the quantitative stuff, like, they come up, they come up, like, once, then we'd get it. Like, we'd all collaborate together and figure, like, oh, so this is the type and like, this is the number, this is the value that we need. Then we'd just never come up again because, like, we basically knew. I think if this, if we had, like, more people on the team, like, we would need a lot more documentation. But, like, yeah, this was, like, the sweet spot where people could just remember the details that they needed to know. And I think we, we have some documentation, right, Dad? But
6: there, yeah, a little bit.
4: <laughs> yeah, but, like, not much. Like, just, like, checkboxes, like, oh, what feature do you need?
0: And otherwise, like, it was, it was very instinctive. It was very interesting. Okay. I was also curious, so who's mainly responsible for the actual puzzle design? And who is responsible for the uh, concept of the elements? And I was wondering if that was more or less the same role?
6: Uh, that's yeah. Had, yeah, had so all was, over the place. that was mostly me. Basically, we're, we're part of a game development club at our school at UMBC. And every year that game development club has kind of like a session where everyone pitches ideas for games they want to make. And then the following weekend, we have a 48-hour game gym where we basically prototype our ideas that we pitch as fast as we can. And then present them to the club at the end and see what people like and they vote on what they want to keep doing. But basically, QBOTS was part of that process. So... I had the original idea and I pitched it to the club and originally it was just me and Jasmine who's not here working on the original prototype and the game jam. So that's when I came up with a lot of like the, the gameplay mechanic ideas and the, some of the level design. And it was when I really got to th- start thinking about the game and like how the different game mechanics could play together and do interesting things. And then we kind of formed our, Full team later on after that. He was a beast during that game jam though.
4: Basically, yeah. <laughs> that entire game was basically done in those 48 hours, except for the I think color changes indoors, color changers, pressure plate doors. Those were pretty much the main features that weren't in the 48-hour demo that he made.
6: Yeah, it was. It was a fun game jam. It was. Mm-hmm. It. It wasn't like done. There was. There was a lot of polish missing. It didn't have any. Like the. It was definitely very playable. It was kind of like if you put the, uh, the Game Jam demo and, like, the demo we showed at Gamescape, the the biggest differences would be, like, more final art and, and like, an actual menu. But, like, it was definitely playable. It was Yeah, it looked it, polished. It definitely, it, yeah, it went out to show what it could do, but it was not, like, production level. Okay, a lot of, like, polish and a few more features to add and stuff.
0: So, Mike and Erica, I was wondering, given that, what drew you to Hubots?
6: Well, uh,
4: before Tad made Hubots, he he made a lot of like really interesting stuff. Like the game he made the year before that was, you know, uh, Smash Brothers, right? Yeah. So basically, imagine Smash Brothers, except you have fully simulated skeletons, right? Okay. Like physically simulated skeletons. Like Qwop. so, like if you do a punch command, it actually triggers the muscles that actually push the fist forward. And if you want to jump, it actually triggers all the muscles all throughout the body to fully coordinate that jump that you do on your feet to actually push your character up. And on top of that, he simulated actually being able to detach parts of the skeleton. So you could punch a guy's, like, arm off Ugh. and his arms still flying, <laughs> like, into space. And if a guy – and if you got hit in the spine and, like, your spine broke, you, you wouldn't actually die. But, like, you couldn't actually like, coordinate your guy. So you'd be flapping around, like, this magic carpet. Kind of and, I mean, but it wasn't, like, gore or anything. Like, you guys play like, you basically played, like, a bunch of, like, Jack Skeleton type of guys. So there was, like, no, there's no blood or anything. But just, like, yeah, like, bullets flying around. Like, well, no, uh, magic song notes flying around. And, had, like, bones flying all over the place. You could actually, like... I remember, like, you, like, if you threw your arm right when it got detached,
6: you could hit a guy in the face with it and knock his arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, could, you could also, like, self-destruct, so if you were, if you're, like, if you are really, like, basically a lump on the ground and you could barely move, if someone came to finish you off, you could hit a button and self-destruct and, like, try to take them down with you. That thing was really deadly, too.
4: Like, if you were next to a guy when the self-destruct went off, like, you were pretty much done. And so, yeah, like, his ideas were always, like, they were really clean. They were really, really, like, gameplay were really polished, and it had a lot of a lot of, like, emergence to them. You, there were so many ways that you could really play a game that had made.
0: Simple ideas like, that had a lot of consequences that could flow out of them easily.
4: Yes, yeah. It was interesting. Like, no two ways you play the game really felt the same. Even, like, in a game like q like, really, like, everything's deterministic. It, like, when you were playing it, like, it felt like you, could, like you could actually approach it different ways. It always felt like interesting. And that wasn't, and I mean, of course, since we're students, that's not the kind of feeling that you get in a lot of designers. So I knew, when I, I knew beforehand, like, oh yeah, like he's an interesting designer. And then um, the year that he made HuBots, I was actually entering a Microsoft competition called the Imagine Cup. And we needed actually, we needed a compelling idea at the time, like, we were talking with our mentor. We wanted something that wasn't, like, really violent or anything. But we also wanted something that was, like, actually interesting. We couldn't just have, like, an artsy game about the, com- the consequences of life. Or get we get <laughs> So and You could. And then Tad, like, did his game in 48 hours. Really fun puzzle game that was, like, just tricky enough to be compelling. But not so tricky that it would disinterest people who thought, like, oh, I need to be a genius to play this game. And I knew Tad, well, Tad was a cool guy. He was not, like, a huge jerk, and so I was, so I called him up and said, like, hey, do you want to maybe do this game this competition? We can have some teriyaki chicken or whatever.
0: And, <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, and then after that, boom, we came together as a team. Nice. And, uh, Erica, what drew you to the project?
5: Oh, uh, well, I kind of tagged along with Michael because... I think initially I was brought on to Michael's team for the Microsoft competition, yeah. but then the game that we were working on didn't really pan out, so we were looking to like get a different team, and then we found Tad's game. And personally, I joined Hubots because I love the game. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I like when I saw it, I'm like yes this is a playable game. I would love to play this and challenge my brain and just do all these puzzles and get angry. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of jumped in because, well, I, I just liked the, the system itself, because it's clean, it's simple, but it's so deceptively complex when all of the little mechanics come together. So, I, I mean, I just love it.
6: Yeah, the, the game might actually be, like, turn complete. We don't like right, did, we okay, yeah. so we have a to go off on a tangent. We have a level editor in the game, and like we gave it to some of our friends, and he was like, "Hey, I made like digital logic circuits in your game without programming anything." And we were like, "What? What?" Like, so like theoretically, basically the point is theoretically, if we allowed you to zoom out far enough in the level editor, and we like tweaked a couple things to let you make more of, like, the same type of objects we already have in the game, you could theoretically, like, build a computer in our level editor. (laughs) But, I mean, like, I mean, we have restrictions in place, because that would take a lot of time and, like, probably melt your own computer. But, I mean, just like, yeah, the gameplay is definitely very emergent. Like, you can do things in it that we didn't really expect. That's because Tad's a good designer. I I didn't intend for this to happen. <laughs> <laughs> like you can build a computer in you Cool. I totally didn't intend for that.
0: Have you heard of the guys who uh, programmed Pong in the Super Mario World? Yes. Yeah.
6: <laughs> that was uh, when I saw that. That blew my mind.
0: Have any of you like uh, personally messed around with the stage uh, creator, or has it mostly just been? Uh, tad creating stages?
4: Well, I drew a duck in it once. I'm not... <laughs> yeah, like, it's funny, like, I, I'm good at, I, I'm pretty good at like, managing, but I'm not very good at puzzles. I've made it, like, I will make, like, a level or two, like, there's each of us made a level for the credits, but I'm definitely more of a, like, a run-around and sort of, like, improvise kind of person. Uh, I think, uh, Erica, you made a couple levels, right?
5: Oh, yeah. No, I think that's Jasmine. Jasmine made some very interesting levels, (laughs) for lack of better words.
6: Yeah, Jasmine's are pretty cool levels. Like, um, I was actually bugging each of them to, like, make a level. I was like, okay, I made all the levels, but, like, each of the four of us should make, like, a special credits puzzle that, like, you get at the end, where it's just, like, each of the team members made a level. Like, that's cool. And, like, Jasmine actually went on and made a few more. And, like because we we also along with the level editor we also have like a level sharing system kind of like little big planet where you like make your level and then you can publish it online and then there's like a browser and game you can like download other people's levels and play them all and stuff nice so so Jasmine was helping me test that and she was making levels and they're they're actually really.
5: I, I just like went on
6: one day and I saw new levels made by her and I was like yeah oh, I, guess, I guess I'll try them out and I was stuck on them for like one of her levels I was stuck on for like 40 minutes like I was considering like messaging her and being like is your level actually possible <laughs> but I was like it's between that or like keeping my pride and like <laughs> try, trying to figure it out on my own that's uh yeah they, they were definitely they were possible and I beat them and it was awesome. That's a little crazy
0: to consider like stumping the person responsible for the game's design.
6: Yeah, that, like it was really interesting too, because since I made so like all of the levels, I've ne I didn't actually have a chance to see how the game was like how it actually was to play. So I was never able to solve any of the puzzles since I'd already made them.
0: So Right. I was about to ask, uh, like, which of you is best at the game, but then I realized, well, you already know the solutions. (laughs) That's kind of a...
6: (laughs) Yeah, so so playing Jasmine's level definitely got me hyped about releasing the game and, like, being able to play what other people create. Part of it's when the game releases, I'll finally be able to play it,
0: too. Nice. So, one last question, just a conceptual question I like to run by everybody individually. Mike? Uh, when it comes to game design—not necessarily Hubots, but just uh, how you think on a more philosophical, abstract level—when it comes to game design, which is more important: the game in itself, the intention of the developer, or the experience of the player? Well, we're trying to make money off our games, and in order <laughs> to
4: do that, you need customers. And as I always used to say, as my peepaw always used to say, that customers always right. So, in my opinion, yeah, like, when we're making games for, for sale, like we are now, like, it has to be the customer experience. That's pretty much it. Like, that's the final arbiter. Will, like We think really hard about, like, oh, like, what's our vision? Like, how do we want people to see this? But in the end, people will play and they'll say, like, oh, I liked it or I didn't like it. And if they did like it, like, yeah, we need to do, we need to work more like that. If they didn't like it, we have to listen to what they say. Otherwise, like, why are we selling it? We should I mean, make it, for, make it for free and release it if we don't want to listen to them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Erica, uh, when it comes to game design, which is more important?
5: Mm, I'm kind of on the same vein, but more so because I like playing games. So someone else, the player, also likes playing games. So if I was the player, I'd want a game that is fun and i enjoy so the player experience is definitely i think the most important although i mean hmm i like game mechanics that are practical so if that can tie in to the user experience then that's probably the best
0: how do you mean uh practical
5: like where where the game itself plays, like, even if it was, say, like, a text game. If it was a text game with, like, no visuals, no nothing, and it still played as an interesting game mechanic, I think that would be, like, great. Because you can build off of that. And that's where you get into, like, user experience.
0: That's an interesting way to phrase it. Okay. And Tad, when it comes to game design, which is more important?
6: Um, So you said... The idea, the developer's intentions, or the
0: user experience?
6: Or the game in itself, but yeah. Yeah, the game. So, I mean, they all kind of go hand in hand. Like when you're you're making the game, you're making what you want to make. So that's kind of like the game itself and the developer's intentions. But like Michael and Erica said, user feedback is king. So, so the the developers intentions if you if you want people to be feeling or like having a certain experience then it's your job to design the game around that and make sure that when people play it they're getting that experience if that makes sense so if you're if you're like watching people play your game and they're doing it completely wrong then that's kind of your fault <laughs> as the designer like you I mean but if they're enjoying it then it's it's kind of up to you whether to change the game to, like, match your intentions but also possibly make it less fun or to just keep it the way it is and kind of have them, keep them happy. So it's, I mean, yeah, they all they all kind of go hand in hand. So let me like,
0: flip that on its head. When you play a game, do you ever think about uh, what the developer intended? Am I playing it their way?
6: I actually have gotten to the point where, like, I can... I mean, I'm also a speedrunner, so I like to think outside the box when I'm playing games. Like, I could totally like skip this cutscene or something, (laughs) like, or like I could like sequence break or whatever. But usually, the first time I'm playing games, I actually like to keep in mind what the developer is intending. Like, I can usually try to predict what they're intending for me to do because I'm assuming that's the best experience I'm going to get if if I kind of follow what they're trying to make me do. Then I feel like that's definitely going to allow me to enjoy the game more because, I mean, as a developer, that's what I'm trying to do. Like, if I'm trying to get the player to do something, then that's because that's probably for <laughs> a very good reason. So when I'm playing games, I like to try to think from a developer mindset and see what they're trying to, like, egg me on to do.
0: Yeah, just in a, I guess, in a practical sense, uh, going off the beaten path, the developer will have... Less money to spend on QA, so you're most, you know, you're more likely to get into <laughs> sticky situations that way.
6: Yeah, right. Like I, I try to avoid those until the second playthrough. Then it's just like I want to break this game. <laughs> <laughs> it's Brutal. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, uh, thank you for joining me to talk about Hubots. Uh, is there anything you guys wanted to bring up?
6: Oh, I can't think of
0: anything. Do um, you guys have any questions?
5: Uh, green
4: light. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. We're Same. on
6: Greenlight. Yeah.
4: Okay. Actually, yes. That—that's definitely one thing. Um, we have a green light currently up under Huebots, of course. Huebots.com. Huebots. H-U-E-B-O-T-S or Huebots. Huebots.
5: <laughs> some people call it.
4: <laughs> Everyone has one way of pronouncing it, but H-U-E-B-O-T-S. And if you guys would want to vote yes, that would be really awesome for us. It'll be. This is the first game I think that's come out of um, UMBC's Games Developers Club as a commercial game. Oh, so nice! Very
0: excited about that. Glad to hear. Very, very thankful for your time. So thank you. So that interview brought us back to questions raised by the Adventures of Lolo podcast, where we mulled over the role of planning in puzzle solving. That was back in episode twenty-four. Thanks for listening. Next time two interviews with games inspired by the real world. One is a fun multiplayer game, while the other takes place inside of your body. See you then! If you have any comments
3: or questions, please email vgcommune at gmail.com